Good morning. I'm uh, Jonathan, I'm the Community and Discipleship Pastor and I'm glad to be with you this morning and welcome to our folks online as well, friends and fam, and if you're new, we'd, if you live nearby, we'd love to see you, meet you, and get to know you more. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew since the end of last year. We've been in a new series uh, this summer called Meeting Jesus, and we're in week eight of that, and it's about these encounters that people have with Jesus that place them in a transformative new direction. It re reorients their lives and sends them in a different direction. And we're invited ourselves to meet Jesus and have the same happen to us. Because when we come face to face with Jesus, it changes our lives and changes the direction that we are going. And no matter where you're at with Jesus today, whether you haven't decided to follow him or follow him for a long time, let me ask you a question. Would you like to experience God more personally and more regularly? Would you like to experience God more personally and more regularly? What if I told you that there was a simple practice that Christians have been doing for millennia to experience God more personally and more meaningfully, and we could start doing it this week. What if I told you it's something we've all heard of and know of, but have forgotten in its practice? And because most of us in this room, including me, haven't been doing it, we've been missing out on one of the three practices that Jesus emphasized as defining practices of his followers. And if we don't do it, we intentionally miss out on a way to experience God on a deeper level and have him change and shape our everyday life on a deep level. So that, that's where we're going today. We're gonna to look at what is this forgotten practice, how is it so powerful, and how is it going to change our lives? And we're gonna find it in an interesting discussion between the disciples of John the Baptist, a prominent figure in the Gospels, and Jesus. And so I wanna invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, we have Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. We're in Matthew chapter 9 in the uh, New International Version, NIV, well, 974 for our Bibles. And uh, while you turn in your Bibles, I want to remind you that the Bible doesn't need to be a mystery. It tells God's story, and we get to find our part in God's story. And that's why we open our Bibles every time we gather together. So before we read the scriptures, I want to invite you to pray with me so God can speak to us through his word this morning. So pray this with me. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may meet Jesus, be transformed by him, and follow him wherever he leads for the sake of your glory and your worldwide mission. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in nine, chapter 9, verse 14, and let's have the scriptures read to us from Paul Montgomery this morning. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. 
then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. They, if they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. All right. Well, before we get to this life-changing, forgotten practice, I want to unpack the text just a little bit. And let's start in verse 14. I'll put it on the screen here. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, one of the questions we should be asking, stopping here, is how do they know that Jesus' disciples don't fast? Are they like watching them all the time? Oh, I saw him eat there. I saw him eat over there, and I was fasting. Well, understanding... First century Judaism is really important here because fasting was a regular part of their week. They would do it twice a week until sundown on Mondays and Thursdays. An expert on first uh, century Judaism is late Professor Shmuel Safrai, and this is what he says to help us understand this. He says that Mondays and Thursdays, which were synagogue days, when country folk came to town and the court sat and the Torah was read, were the favored days for public and private fasts. The Didache, an ancient Christian document on Christian practice, warns against fasting along with the hypocrites, which were the Pharisees on these days, urging for Wednesday and Friday instead. The Pharisee in Luke, who boasted of his twice-weekly fasting, must have meant Mondays and Thursdays, but the custom was confined to certain circles among the Pharisees and their disciples. So, What's the conclusion here? Well, that just means that John's disciples had encountered Jesus and his disciples on Mondays and Thursdays enough to know that they weren't fasting when they were fasting. I like to think, actually, that this encounter happened on a Monday or Thursday, and it's the middle of the day, and they're asking Jesus as his disciples are eating right in front of them. They ask the question, the disciples just stop chewing. <laughs> like, what's he gonna say? And what Jesus says is kind of surprising. And let's continue, verse 15. Jesus answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from, from them. Then they will fast. Okay, so they take a breath. They start chewing again. They're chewing, and then all of a sudden they stop again and go, what? Wait a second. Bridegroom? Is Jesus getting married? Is he leaving? What is he talking about here? Well, they probably recognize this bridegroom idea. Back to the prophets, specifically Hosea in chapter two is God as the bridegroom. And, and then we have the full rest of the New Testament and see this imagery of the bridegroom and the bride, the bride being the followers of Jesus and this connection. We even see this bridegroom bride thing as a, as a model for earthly marriage in Ephesians. But Jesus is saying, just as you thought of God as the bridegroom, I am he, that is me. 
he's making a claim in what he is saying there. And we know the rest of the New Testament about Jesus' death, his resurrection, ascension, that he is gonna come back, he's gonna return. And so there's kind of this finding ourselves in this already but not yet time. Jesus has come but he has not come back to make everything new. It's really a time between feasts when Jesus was physically with the disciples and when he will come again in the middle a time for fasting. Notice at the end that he says then they will fast. Not then they can, then they will think about it. It says then they will fast. It's definitive. Okay, let's look at the rest of the passage. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Okay, that makes sense. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. There's no, no give. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What's he saying here? Well, in short, he's saying the king is bringing in the new way of the kingdom that the old way, the old paradigm, the old framework is gonna be complete and we can't just mend them. We have to have a new way. You have to be made new. And once that is done, that even old rhythms can be newly done in the new way of the kingdom. If you remember last week, uh, we watched a little clip from The Chosen of Jesus calling Matthew as one of his disciples and Peter kind of remarks and says, this is different. And how does Jesus respond? Get used to different. Get used to different. I love it. But Jesus is clear about one thing in this passage, which is that fasting, which was something that was being done, will be a part of his kingdom way, and he's definitive about it. When we looked at the Sermon on the Mount a while back, Matthew chapter 6, he uses this phrase, when you fast. There's not if you fast, it's a when you fast, it's implications is that will occur. And so now, by now you've probably guessed, what is this forgotten practice? Well, it's the forgotten practice of fasting, of fasting. Like I said, did you know that Jesus only explicitly talks about three spiritual practices, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it's giving, prayer, and you guessed it, fasting. He says, when you fast. So let's fast forward just real quick from this. After the bridegroom left, after Jesus has left, did the disciples fast? Did the early church fast? Well, you heard in that quote, the, the professor quoted the Didache, this uh, document on Christian practice, and this is what it says directly from the Didache translation. Your fasts must not be identical with those of the hypocrites, the Pharisees. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And I heard you guys laugh when we had it at the other one, because like, what is going on? It's got to be these kind of days. And what's happening here, though, is it's reorienting the rhythms around who the real king is. So why Wednesdays and Fridays? Well, Wednesdays was about the passion the leading up to the death of Jesus and Friday about the crucifixion. It was remembering these particular moments of Jesus bringing in this new way of the kingdom. And so when we think about this, this was the practice of Christians for hundreds of years after this. And if you're like me, you might be even quite shocked by this going, Wait a second, Christians were defined by this twice a week, Wednesday, Friday, fasting as a regular rhythm until sundown? Yep. 
And, and I knew about fasting in my Christian life. I've done it about a dozen times in my life, but honestly, I've treated it more like a jackhammer. Like, you know what I mean by that? Like, you know, the thing you pull out when nothing else seems to break through, the thing you kind of pull in is like this special occasion thing that you bring. But really, it's only been about the last hundred years that regular fasting has not been the def a defining practice of followers of Jesus. And in preparation for this sermon, I've never been more convicted about the practice of fasting needing to be placed as a regular rhythm in my life. Richard Foster, author on spiritual disciplines, looking back at scripture, the early church, and throughout even church history, he says this, that the spiritual discipline of fasting can bring breakthroughs in the heart and mind that will not happen in any other way. It is a means of God's grace for the continuing formation of the human personality into the likeness of Christ. Now, before studying this, even in my jackhammer kind of thinking about fasting, I would read this, what he says here, and I'd go, well, yeah, exactly. You bring it out when you need it, breakthrough that can't happen any other way, perfect. But here's what's interesting. Knowing the context of how Jesus talks to fasting, the early church, historical Christianity, and even how Richard Foster is thinking about all of those things when he says this blows my mind because he's thinking about regular fasting, regular fasting. And you can see how this forgotten practice is important, powerful, and it can change our lives in devotion to God. So for the rest of our time, what I wanna do is focus on how can regular fasting help us encounter God and bring about life change. How can it do that? And for the first day, I want you to think about something. Have you ever been around someone that just makes you better? Just they, you're around them, they just bring out the best in you. That you just, you feel like they elevate your character, they elevate your sense of worth, they just, they make you feel like so loved. Well, no one can do that greater than God. And that's one of the benefits of fasting is that it provides a pathway to his presence. Fasting provides a pathway to his presence. When we look at the passage, what do we see is the difference between the disciples not fasting and the inevitable call to be fasting? What is the difference here? Well, it's the presence of the bridegroom, it's Jesus. And if it's God's presence that we need and it's sufficient, that's what we need to go after his presence. And what I love is C.S. Lewis looking at this passage. He says this, this man, Jesus, suddenly remarks one day, no one need fast while I am here. Who is this man who remarks that his mere presence suspends all normal rules? His presence is that. Powerful. Jesus has the authority to change the very patterns of God's people because he is God. And think of what it would be like to be with the bridegroom in that context that he's giving. It's, it's joyous, it's celebratory, it's memory-making time. The mere presence of Jesus is to bring about overjoyed people. Overjoyed people, he is one we long to experience and be with, and he meets us in fasting. John Piper, pastor and writer, says that fasting is an expression of our longing for God. Fasting is an expression of our longing for God. And when we long for something, for someone, we plan around it. We slow down enough to engage with it or with them. And that's a huge benefit of this practice. 
It slows down time. How does it do that? Well, just think about this with me for a second, is that we all know when we've been really uncomfortable, wishing the time away, what happens? Time starts to crawl, goes real slow. And this is my experience with fasting as well. It cannot be the end of the fast fast enough. Like I, I'm waiting for the feast, let's go. But what happens is it draws me into these precious moments that are slowed down, that I'm uncomfortable and I become aware of many things, but most importantly, God's desire to meet me. Because fasting is ultimately about experiencing and being with Jesus. It's ultimately about being with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is in you and with you all the time by his Holy Spirit. But listen, listen, this is the key. We have to slow down enough to notice. Amen. We have to slow down enough to notice. Anybody's life feel busier, faster, crazier than ever? I, I know mine does, and I'm not saying in that that everyone in this room has to take stuff off their plate. You might need to do that, but that's not my point. I'm, what I'm saying is the God who made us, saves us, sustains our present and future is knowable and he wants to meet us and change us to be more like him. Are we willing to slow down and unhurry our lives enough to notice and let him do that? Fasting creates an opportunity for that encounter. He will meet you there. And what's great about uh, meeting God in this way, it's not so unlike buying a new car. And you're like, what? Well, let me tell you what I mean by that. Well, what happens when you buy a new car? You start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. You start seeing it everywhere. And that's the thing. Encountering God in private will let you see him more of everywhere else. And we get to see where he is so desperately needed. Where he is so desperately needed. I love how Dallas Willard, the late professor and author, says that fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. A source of sustenance beyond food. We need his presence. Fasting changes our lives because it provides a pathway to his presence, but it also resets our rhythms to reorient our priorities. To reorient our priorities. When I was quoting John Piper earlier, I said that fasting is an expression of our longing for God, but the rest of his quote goes on to say, and an exposure of what we would want instead. Exposure of what we would want instead. Fasting can be a path to experiencing God and a time to reorder him above what we were wanting and said, and sometimes we don't even realize how amazing something is or how much we really do desire it until we experience it. Let me tell you this story. I once made a simple bet with a buddy of mine and uh, I won the bet and it was for a lunch. And he goes, okay, you won the bet, I'm gonna take you to Portillo's. I'm like, pretty good, all right. Free lunch at Portillo's. He's gonna pick me up the next day but he calls me the night before and he goes, hey, Jonathan, Wear something nice. Okay. I say this to my wife, Stephanie. And as I talk to her, some of you got that reference. Uh, and I say, I don't know what happened right now. I don't know if I won a bet or if I'm going on a date. And 
So the next day he picks me up, he drives me down to downtown Minneapolis, and we go to Manny's. I go, no, we're not. He goes, yes, we are. I'm like, okay. So we go in, it's the lunch menu, but he had made sure that we could order off the dinner menu. Now, here's the reason for that, because years and years of being on a flag football team with him, we had dreamed of the day where we could save up enough money to go to Manny's and experience this. If you don't know what Manny's is, it's like an internationally acclaimed steakhouse, like premier, top of the line type of steak. And we were going. Now, we both got a 40-day dry-aged bone-in ribeye. Mm, you can just taste it right now. But here's the thing, the steak, just to give you context here, the steak by itself, no sides, nothing, just the meat cooked for you was $88. Whoo, my, yes, exactly, whoa, this is an expensive lunch I just won in a bet. Now the thing is for him, he had just experienced like a bonus of sorts and wanted to just kind of make it a lunch we would never forget. Obviously, I will never forget <laughs> this lunch. But needless to say, this experience, every bite, was perfect. I mean, just, it was amazing. And I share this story to ask that those of us who have encountered God personally know how amazing he is. But don't we most of the time take God's presence for granted? I know I do. I do it all the time. I mean, think, if I think about it this way. If I could have Manny's steak for free every week, you better believe I'd be showing up. I would be, and how more amazing is God and his presence? Or maybe you're out there and you don't know Jesus yet. You haven't experienced his incredible love, forgiveness, and mercy that he can bring into your life. All I can say is whoever you are, wherever you're at right now, the world's attractions are very tempting but are never deeply satisfying. Because guess what happened the morning after Manny's? I was hungry again. I was hungry again. If we do this long enough, just long for the things in this world and have those things as a higher priority than God in his presence, it becomes our normal rhythm. And we miss out on experiencing the presence of God, which is deeply satisfying, and we continue to foster a love for other things. As I fasted this week in preparation for the sermon, I reread this quote from Andy Crouch, Christian author, and I want you to lean into this quote I'll read it a little slower. When we practice the spiritual disciplines, we discover how deep runs our commitment to our own autonomy and comfort and how addicted we are to the approval of others, the sound of our own voice and the satisfaction of our appetites. I read this on Wednesday. I just started crying because I, I am so distracted by this world. So distracted. I don't think I'm reminded enough of how deeply my idols of comfort, approval, and self are. And how much I actually make them a priority in my life and work towards them. And it's so easy to do that. But what's great is that God didn't just have me sit there in that shame. God does what he does and he meant me with mercy. Reminding me that Jesus was tempted in all these ways and overcome them in his great fast in the desert. 
And the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in me and I'm forgiven in his presence I can be made new and there's nothing like experiencing God's mercy in light of your shame to prioritize him above all else. That's what you really need, God, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy. It's truly sweeter than any manny steak will ever be. You see, it's these moments that help us reorder priorities to reorder disordered priorities and re-aim them or reorient them and they change us. Fasting can change us in ways that impact us greatly. There's this story of a writer, Shane Claiborne, who went and visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta and when he spent some time with her, this is what he said about his time. He said, the people often ask me what Mother Teresa was like. Sometimes it's like they wonder if she glowed in the dark or had a halo. She was short, wrinkled, and precious, maybe even a little ornery, like a beautiful, wise old granny. But there's one thing I will never forget, her feet. Her feet were deformed. Each morning in mass, I would stare at them. I wondered if she had contracted leprosy, but I wasn't going to ask, of course, hey mother, what's wrong with your feet? But here's what's interesting. When he finds out why, listen. One day, a sister said to us, have you noticed her feet? We nodded, curious. She said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough donated shoes for everyone. And mother does not want anyone to get stuck with the worst pair. So she digs through and finds them. And years of doing that have deformed her feet. Years of loving her neighbor as herself deformed her feet. He finishes by saying, this is the kind of fasting that will create in us a divine longing for justice, for changing priority, where our feet become deformed by a love that places our neighbors above ourselves. This obedient rhythm of fasting that makes no sense to anyone else looking around makes sense only because of who we would prioritize most. And it affects our identity. What's interesting is our identity is shaped by the rhythms of our life. I believe it's Aristotle that said that we are what we repeatedly do. And I think we all wanna prioritize God above all else and fasting is a way that reorders what is number one in our life and who we will serve ultimately. Richard Foster, who I quoted earlier, he says this, that we fast for many reasons. We fast because it reveals the things that control us. We fast because it helps to give us balance in life. We fast because there's an urgent need. Most important of all, we fast because God calls us to it. We have heard the voice of the Lord and we must obey. Fasting gives us a path to God's presence and it helps us reorder our priorities and fasting shapes our spirit through our stomach shapes our spirit through our stomach there's this funny story of this woman named Kathy and her daughter and her husband comes and says that he's going to start fasting and praying and their five-year-old daughter had just learned what fasting is that's not eating and she kind of goes no daddy you can't fast you'll die and the dad carefully explained like, okay, a lot of men and women from the Bible um, fasted and the daughter paused a moment and just with full of insight, she goes, and they're all dead. Ginny's <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, she, yeah, she's right, she's right. Without food, I will die. You will die, but here's the thing. 
without God, so it is also. What's really interesting about fasting in scripture is it takes this whole idea of fasting, this physical, very physical lack in our stomach and connects it with the spirit. Something spiritual has happened. I think we've believed too much that thinking and knowing the right things is enough. That spiritual formation happens only through our thinking in our minds and at the, the spirit level. But we're not just brains on a stick. We're embodied creatures. Spirit, mind, body. All those things are connected. Our bodies, our rhythms, our actions are connected. Our spirit can be shaped by our stomach. James K.A. Smith writer and professor, he says that Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. And so many of our wants, loves, and longings are physical. And what's fascinating is we saw from the previous point that Rhythms in our lives can reveal our loves, wants, and desires. Rhythms, if we look at our life, we can look at our rhythms and we will see our loves, wants, and desires. I mean, what could you be accused of wanting, loving, and desiring someone looking at your rhythms? Look at your environment. What are they oriented around? Look at your calendar. What is it oriented around? And this is one of the hardest things to do, to come face to face with what you do truly love, want, and desire, because it may not be what you think it is or what you desire to desire. And it is only in this Holy Spirit-led fasting that you can get down to the base to confront these revelations and give them to Jesus that the Holy Spirit can reorient our loves, wants, and desires. It's the best part about rhythms in our life, actually, that they not only reveal what you love and desire, but they can also be changed to rewire what you love and desire. They don't just reveal it, but rhythms can rewire our loves, wants, and desires. Just like what we can see, what we love by looking at them, we can rewire them by changing them. I mean, think about it this way. What if a temporary lack in your stomach could help change a deeper or what seemingly permanent lack in your spirit? Let me ask that question again. What if a temporary intentional lack in your stomach could help change a deeper or seemingly permanent lack in your spirit? Fasting can shape our love for God through the lack in our stomach. I mean, this is why so many people in light of fasting get involved with World Vision or other organizations feeding the poor around the world because there's a vast difference between fasting and true hunger. And you guys get this. You, you know that there's a vast difference there. I mean, fasting is an intentional experiencing of hunger when it is possible to do otherwise. Where true hunger is experiencing hunger without any possibility of satisfying it. And just small amounts of fasting can breathe life into wanting to bring about justice and help to a world that needs it. That a lack in our stomach can shape a love for God in our world. It shapes our spirit through our stomach. And here's a conviction I had this week is that sacrificial living is not something I could be accused of. Now, people that know me are immediately coming to my defense because you love me and all those types of things. But 
I know that I don't have a, a regular rhythm of sacrificial living, but I also know I can change that, I can rewire it, because to get good at something, what do we need to do? We need to practice it. And if I'm honest, fasting was a reminder that I avoid that sometimes. That, oh, that'll be too much time. That'll be inconvenient. That'll be too emotionally draining. I don't wanna deal with that right now. We all do this with even simple things that like peel it back to just like physical health and sacrifice and those kind of things that like, I'll work out tomorrow. I'll sign up for the gym next month. I'll finish the pint of ice cream and start fresh next week. <laughs> now don't feel bad about these things, we all experience them. But those of you that have pushed to the other side of good rhythms and those things, you found a habit, a pattern, a rhythm of doing it, getting over the hump and making it regular and what did you find? You found reward in that. You found reward in that. Making something regular will bring about its reward. And I love how Jesus speaks to this in uh, Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see what he says. He says that when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you will reward you, a lack in our stomach shaping our spirit. Fasting provides a pathway to his presence. It reorders our priorities and shapes our spirit through our stomach. It's meant for our good. And like I said earlier, like all these things, and what's most surprising is it wasn't just this like once every other year kind of experience for most Christians for most of history, not just the early Christians, but all the way to like John Wesley in the 18th century and modern authors right now and uh, pastors. They've been doing this Wednesday and Friday fasting thing, which is like, wow, that's crazy. Now. Here's the thing, this is not an exhaustive teaching on fasting, there's so many things, you probably guys have already know about fasting that we didn't even get to, I didn't even touch them. But I do wanna say this in conclusion. You aren't a better Christian if you fast, but you will be a better Christian if you fast. I'll say it one more time. You aren't a better Christian if you fast, but you will be a better Christian if you fast. And what I mean by that is the point of fasting itself doesn't make you better than anyone else. And to do so is exactly what Jesus is warning against in Matthew 6. But engaging in this practice of fasting with God, God will make you a better version of yourself. He will meet you there. So I wanna challenge you this week. And I know you're thinking of all the different reasons of why I don't need to do this, or how it's gonna be so hard. I've done this before, I don't like it. You're telling me to fast every week, maybe even twice a week. I'm not trying to put that on you. I want God to lead you in this and how he's speaking in your life through the word and his Holy Spirit. But I do wanna challenge you in that to maybe just start small and just fast over breakfast. Then maybe build up to dinner or sundown. And I've included in the sermon application guide a helpful tool called Practicing the Way. Uh, John Mark Homer has put it together. It's like a four-week experience of putting fasting into your life. 
but engage in this ancient practice. Start fasting this week. And I think if we all started to do this, at first it might be kind of rough, uh, having so many hangry five ochres walking around in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but as we'd start to see, we'd have a church family that orders their way around the life of Jesus. And it would be giving us a more thriving, meaningful relationship with Jesus, one that we actually want to give away to others. And we'd start to see what's broken in our world and where God needs to intervene and where we might be a part of where God wants us to intervene. We'd be shaped by God and define this family of God by his priorities and a longing for him to be with us, for him to come back, to come again, because that's what fasting does. It shows us our longing for him to be with us in full between the, the feast of when he was with us physically before his death and resurrection and when he comes again looking towards that through fasting. And that's actually something we do in, in a rhythm of not fasting, but feasting in communion. That we remember every time we gather, we celebrate communion. And so I wanna invite you to take out the elements. Communion is for those who have given their lives to Christ. And if you're out there and you haven't given your life to Christ, to submit to him as king, as God of your life, to believe that he died for you and forgave you through his death on the cross and gives and breathes new life into you through his resurrection. You can do that in the quiet of your hearts right now to take that step. But the scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you sent your son Jesus. save us, to give us new life, and to show us the way. God, I pray for everyone in this room and those watching online, that you just move in their hearts by your Holy Spirit. Just move where you'd like them to move. Would you help us all to not just leave this moment where you are working in our hearts, working in our minds, and just leave it in this moment, but that we would take it into our lives, that you'd be shaping us even now as we pray. God, we love you, and we know you are so good, and we can't wait till you come back again. In Jesus' name, amen.